Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Michelle Fife in the house, man, in living color for a shoot interview today. Uh, got in town yesterday. We went digging in Ides for a couple of hours <laughs> until they started sweeping up around us. Yeah, man, pretty much. Just vacuuming was and cleaning. The high sign that we better uh, make our purchases and get the hell out of there, man. Uh, before we get started, what, kind, what are some of the things that you picked up uh, at the shop, man? Because we are going back right after the shoot interview, by the way. Yes, I got to continue my, uh, my bin diving, but I got this. And what this, is that uh, for this is a this is a comic journal seventy seven with a cool Kevin Nolan Daredevil cover, so yeah. I had to pick that up. I've had it before, but you know sometimes it doesn't survive uh, my purges. You know, that's that's one of those ones you showed it off, and I'm like, oh fuck, I'm so mad you grabbed that one. <laughs> like I'm so, I'm so mad I didn't hit that box before the, you. Yeah, you were like, there's another one over there. Yeah, scooped and it now right it's up, yours. Man. You know, Nolan was supposed to be the artist after Miller. So yeah. this is the closest he got to actually fulfilling that that promise. But then I think he chose Moon Knight instead. So I don't it, know. It's fun seeing uh, his Fantagraphics covers because he largely beyond beyond color guides. He he does color the color separations. And for sure. When we were down at Heroes Con, one of the conversations we had was uh, about cutting Ben Day for your own color seps, and he's he was like, you know what, man, the thing that would always suck is when you put your final separations down and you notice a little triangle of dots missing and you can't find it anywhere <laughs> and then yeah. eventually you just give it up and then the, the final printed piece comes out and you see a little pizza slice of extra yellow mm -hmm. on top of yellow. Somewhere else, on yeah. It's a very nerdy conversation. Uh, I love it. Uh, speaking of nerdy, Comic Scene Yearbook. I've never seen this thing. Uh, comic Scene is an old comics magazine that used to be in every books are walden books b dalton stuff like that it's kind of like the mainstream window into comics uh so i always pick them up whenever i can yeah and then i got i got sinner and sinner uh for you listeners is uh jose muñoz's uh crime comic with writer Sampaio. Uh, yeah and uh i never see these in the wild ever so i just pick them up automatically and I, it was an issue i was missing so that's fun uh, and then Escape Magazine, which I'm not too familiar with. I've, I've seen it here and there, but this one also has some Munoz comics in here. And uh, I just can't get enough of Munoz. He's a, I wouldn't say he's a huge influence, but I love his work. Where did you first find his work? Were you a kid? In my, no, in my 20s, maybe. You know, uh, you know, reverse engineering Giffen, pretty much. You know, and you know, that's, that to me, the Giffen Munoz uh, talking point to me is the same as like Rob Liefeld feet conversations. It's like, it's just hacky. It's just hacky borrowed opinions. It's like, it's, it's like, gif yeah, it's super cliched, except it's fanboy speak from For a snob. Who, who's it's like snobby shit. A quick summary is that Moon, uh, Giffen was criticized for uh, for, guess, for deeply swiping, swiping some yeah, pan right. panels. Which is, isn't the best practice. You know, people certainly look down upon it, artists, fans. Um, it's not cool, you know, he just went through a phase, you know, but people just hold on to that phase as if that's like the biggest fuck up, the biggest sin, right? I mean, the guys calling him out might have been even in that issue of uh, Comics <laughs> Journal You're that, right. that you were holding You're up right, right, right. They would have the swipe file and, and uh, tattletale. That's on, right, uh, yeah. Guys who were I, cribbing I, work. I forget his name, but it was a huge piece. And I think because of that piece, the backlash, that's when Giffen stopped drawing as much and became a layout artist more kind of started working for Marvel a little bit, you know, so. He's lucky that's the days before the internet, man, when a bunch of little armchair guys could hit a couple of buttons on a computer and just 
never let you forget uh, your, yeah. your transgressions. Yeah, just a bunch of narcs. Listen, speaking about social media, I feel like the first time you got put on my radar was the live journal days, man. We One of my favorite live journals to, to, oh my God, yeah. to, to, to follow. I, I, I don't think we met before then. I think I was a fan of your live journal. There would be uh, missives and articles in there, blog posts showing off the... Um, you know the fan art, the the spot illustrations of the Hernandez Bros before yeah. Eleven Rockets and yeah, Amazing yeah. Heroes and Comic Journal, and I'm like, this guy's speaking my language. Yeah, you know this is one of my buds. It's funny, like Live Journal. There was a, a subsite called Scans Daily, and when I discovered that, people would post like just whole comics sometimes, and they you know they stopped that practice. But I saw it as a way to just share stuff I liked that I didn't see on that site or anywhere. And uh, I would put stuff up like the Hernandez Brothers comics journal drawings or old Trevor Von Eden art. You know, I'm just like, no one's really talking about these artists, but I, I love them and I have all this stuff. It was just a way, it was just an avenue for me to sort of share that and just geek out personally. That led to me interviewing uh, Trevor Von Eden because in me posting stuff about these kind of artists, I, I also, I was like, what are they doing now? Oh shit, they haven't worked for 20 years. Why is that? Where do they go? What's their story? And I looked for old interviews. They didn't exist. So they're almost erased, right? They're almost like not part of comics history. So just because I needed that information, I sought these people out. And it led to this brief stint of me just talking to these creators, you know? Yeah. Uh, it didn't last too long, but it, it's still an interest of mine. But I don't really pursue it as, as much because of my schedule. Sure. You know? But that's how it all started because of Live Journal, you know. And that's why I used to post, you know, comics, flyer art. I didn't really use it as a journal, but just as a showcase for art and for stuff I liked. So that would be in the mid early two thousands, and that's when I started mm -hmm. going to uh, conventions and things. And it was really the first time, you know, Pittsburgh's a pretty small town. I have Jimmy, I have Tom, uh, but wouldn't it be nice to have more more friends who speak the same language and things like that? I'd go to shows. Yeah and meet people like you who totally on the exact same wavelength but i only get to see you one time a year and then we go home and, and social media cropped up in the midst of that man mm. like the, like myspace was brand new after the first after the second or third spx i went to and then it became a place where man not only can i like keep in touch but i can keep eyes on what the homies are working on over these 20 years it's become perverted into some sure. other shit where it's like sure. i ain't even trying to look at almost anybody's anything but i'm still looking at what you're doing i'm looking at those venn diagrams yeah yeah yeah. i'm looking <laughs> at the pie charts and shit just about every <laughs> second of it <laughs> that is just me and my obsession like just like i have to create these lists and diagrams just to make sense of stuff um really no other purpose than that you know i really should make a zine out of it because they're, they're piling up but it could be just really basic, like what's the history of Marvel corporate? Like just just like kind of boring stuff that, you know, no civilian should ever know these things, right? Um, but in terms of social media, I, I'm a product of that, you know? And that's how I've built my career because of uh, the way I distribute my comic and promote my comic and my work. Uh, I don't think I'd be able to do that you know, if it was the 90s or 80s, it would just be a different monster. It'd be, I'd have to approach it differently, you know, take different avenues in terms of self-distribution, you know. Uh, but social media has for sure helped, not only to show art, but just to reach out to people and have that direct contact, you know. Because 
like when I started self-publishing, I wasn't through Diamond, which right. is the main distributor, right, for comics in this country. I was just doing it on my own, so social media played a huge role in that. You know, as weird as it could get, it could get weird, and it's morphed into its own weird thing. But you just got to roll with it. You know, I've learned to do that. Yeah, it's one of those tools that is massive because it is a distribution mechanism, and I feel like that's a shift in comics. You know, like there's there've been a couple of these seismic distribution shifts. Early '80s, late '70s, we have the direct market, which I always point to Love and Rockets as coming out of that. Like the distribution is what enables a book like that. Yeah, and yeah. I think in this in this century like social media has enabled a bunch of different practices like where you are with copra mm -hmm. in terms of being really close to your audience being able to distribute through comic sort of traditional comic channels and comic stores right. but it all kind of comes back to that you were experimenting early on on like with web comics and stuff like activate were you part of that group mm -hmm. so it, it's almost like if we trace your history you're sort of trying these different tools that are popping up uh, under the under the umbrella, say, of social media, but mm. you're trying these different pieces, and they and you can almost see them coming together. What were some? Do you remember any big milestones in like pre Copra in terms of like, oh, okay, I've I've hit on a formula here, or I found a way to distribute my work through this mechanism? Do you remember any of those high points? Yeah, well, that was Live Journal. Activate was a bunch of cartoonists doing comics on Live Journal, um, and to me, that was just another place where I could just put my work, right? So I would do, you know do zines i would go to conventions i would submit samples and posting comics online was one of those things that i did to try to break in right just to have some sort of presence or just see what the feedback would be you know whatever um and that morphed and that was a comic called panorama which has since been collected by dark horse and it was weird seeing all those old pages because they're you know uh like 20 years old now at this point you know but um I, it just it it helped me um, develop. I don't know about an audience because you know what it, it was really just a bunch of friends just looking at our own stuff, you know, and so that was good. That was a healthy, good social thing to do and be a part of. And then I did Zagus, and that was also sort of online. And I never saw these comics as web comics, right? I never used it as like, oh, I'm going to take advantage of the web. Um, the format inf the infinite canvas. <clears throat> I'm not going to do that. What I was doing is like what I would what I would want to see in print, but it's just online. So it wasn't at its best, in other words, right? To me, the final destination was the print form, the, the, where you could flip, you could hold it. It was um, great though, again, in terms of distro, because like that's what would happen to me at shows. I'd come back from shows and there'd be message boards of like, "This is what everybody got at SPX this year," and it'd be if you missed it. You were kind of out of luck if it was just print. You yeah. might be able to track down a copy with the sure. cartoonist, but it was tough if you missed it. If it's online, it's like, okay, I've been hearing about Fife. Oh, great. His comic, I can read it here. I can see it all here. And there's such a value in that for somebody who's looking. Sure. No, there's a value. But what I was mentioning, though, is that uh, it was sort of like just a small crew. It was all. It was sort of like preaching to the choir. It was your friends, you know? Some people might have heard of it. You might have seen it. You might have seen it. But it wasn't like, wasn't the world. The potential was there. You know, it's like, it's kind of like a, when a company's like, oh, we'll pay you with exposure. It's like, <laughs> sure, that's nice in theory, but that ain't shit, right? So when I would post comics online, it would just be, you know, my friends being supportive, which has its value, of course. It, it would show up. Uh, like the places where it would be shared because it's it is that like if a tree falls in the forest thing okay cool you guys put this live journal together mm -hmm. where would it show up it wasn't getting the like 
articles written in Esquire magazine or something to, for just outsider eyeballs. Right. There's a new link on the Comics Journal message board. Heidi McDonald might put, put something up on the mm-hmm. beat. And that's what you're talking about, right? Like with uh, the preaching to the choir stuff. It's still getting seen by the same comic book sure. heads. Right. And you're just too busy working on it. You just don't really care. You're just putting stuff out, right? You're hoping it sticks. You're just working. You know, you're just trying to milk those avenues as much as you can. And that led to um, my self-publishing because I just didn't want to be online exclusively, you know? And I was also trying to do the traditional mode of breaking in. Like I said, samples, talking to editors, going to conventions with a big, awkward portfolio, getting critiques, being in anthologies, uh, going to shows, not selling zines, pretty much trying to sell zines, trying to sell comics. And it just, all these traditional methods weren't working for me. Right. So I was pretty much forced to self-publish because I just needed my comics to be out there somehow in the way I wanted them to be, not on the web and not through like a company like like a a huge publisher wasn't going to have my work the way I wanted it to be. And that's that's to say superheroes. Right. And that's sort of like the big story of like my career. Uh, Not not story, but like the arc, which is like juggling the superhero mainstream uh, love and like my own sensibilities and they don't really mesh well at least in the eyes of the industry let me ask you this real quick uh, with that in mind when you're going to conventions and you're showing editor samples uh, if you would have gotten a thumbs up would your style because it's a very unique style you're your own guy for sure would you have morphed into job dude like would you have done the thing man like whatever the du jour well i don't, I don't know <laughs> to deal with the devil <laughs> i don't know maybe i was on that trajectory as a kid before meeting jim and those guys like getting out of the cubert school but that, like, that's what i wanted to do i could have yeah. been a penciler yeah i could show you those samples i was ready for that and what i was showing editors it, it doesn't look like for example cobra or anything i wasn't like doing weird color stuff or weird layouts i was trying to do the traditional thing like i could draw I want to tell stories. Let me get in there, and then I start doing my shit, right? The then I start. The Rob formula. Exactly, right? I grew up taking those guys as advice, right? You redraw an old comic, or not an old, but any comic, just redraw it, show it how you would do it. I thought I could, I could do it, you know. Uh, ever since high school, I was like, yeah, I could do this. This is my career. This is what I want. It. This is what I want my career to be. But I also knew about Love and Rockets. I also knew about Eight Ball. I knew about Every, every cartoonist that's in that uh, comic book confidential documentary. I knew about the world outside of Marvel DC. I wasn't a dumb kid, but I wanted to have a career. Like I knew that I wanted to get paid to make comics. So, and I grew up wanting to, to draw Batman and you know, X-Men and all the, uh, everything. I just wanted to be that guy, essentially like a Frank Miller sort of, or John, you know, all the guys that worked in that industry where they just plugged away on these um, huge characters and then they went off and did Sin City, right? That to me seemed like a sound model and I wanted to do that. So pretty much have my cake and eat it too. Do superheroes but do it in your own way and then do your own thing anyway. Or even Image Comics, that's the way it was. It's like, I'm going to do Spider-Man for a few years and then I'm going to do Spawn. To me it just seemed logical. So that was that's always been the struggle and I think when I was trying to break in I don't know. It just wasn't working. It, it just wasn't good. It was a time of in the industry when like people weren't hiring. Like you had to be really fucking either great or you have to fit into a high style. 
and I don't think my style was like great at all, it, but there was no room for development. I wasn't like a crusty bunker. I wasn't a Ramita Raider. <laughs> I wasn't in there. I should have been an intern. That should have been my way in. Would I have turned out the way I am now? Probably not, but who knows, you know? I still would have wanted to do my own thing. That's always been in me, to make my own comics, but also like, yeah, I want to work on these huge properties to make my own stuff happen. Are you still interested in that, working on these huge properties? Is that still uh, some part of the plan? It's part not of part of the plan. Joe, it's just, well, it's, I mean, it's gravy, right? It's it, like, if I get those gigs, awesome. I'll do them. I'm not above that. Like, I haven't, like, divorced myself from that part of the industry. Uh, but it's not, like, plan A or plan B. Like, I got my own comics to make, you know? You mentioned G.I. Joe and Bloodstrike. Or you mentioned <laughs> yeah. <that. You're>, you <laughs> reminded me of those. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th th those are a really interesting piece because, you know, you, you bookend them on both sides with Copra. So you bookend them on both sides with your own work and self-published and, mm -hmm. and image and all this stuff. What was the experience with those? Was that a positive experience work doing work for hire? Well, I got to say that was okay. So just to skip ahead a little bit when I did Copra, which is, you know, my serialized adventure comic, um, I started getting work from Marvel as a writer, which was weird for me. Like at first I thought they wanted me to draw because I don't see myself as a writer. I'm like a, an artist first or cartoonist really. But yeah. if I had to do a, a, a job like that, it would have to be art. But they wanted a writer. So what era was it? Was this Bill Jimmis era? No, this was Axel. Twenty, yeah, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen. Okay. Um, I just asked that because I remember Bill Jimmis. He he called me up one time after WYSIWYG, and he's they were starting something new up, and he all but said, "I think your art sucks, but I would love for you <laughs> to do some writing for us." And I wondered if you got that at the same conversation. Anyhow. <laughs> <go ahead. laughs> I'm sure that's the opinion uh, behind closed doors. I don't know. Sure. I don't know. They eventually let me draw. They you, you know, they they let you draw. So it, it's totally. all good. It worked totally. out. Yeah. Uh, no, this was 2013, 2014. The first year of Copra was wrapping up, and uh, my, Brian Michael Bendis reached out. He was a fan, and he was like, "Would you like to work on something? Are you open to that?" And I'm like, "Sure, of course. Whatever it is, let's. What is it? You know." Next thing I know, it's it's for a writing gig. So I did that right. And then I started getting more writing gigs or more writing offers. And it just wasn't fun. Yeah. You know, I tried it. I got outside of my comfort zone. Uh, it was good. I have no horror stories about it. You know, the people I worked with were cool. The were editors. You, were you going Giffen with it? Providing layouts, just drawing no, uh, comics on type and paper? The first issue of the, the title I, I worked on, All New Ultimates, I provided some layouts. You know, some choreography, right? And I was like, oh, that'll be my stamp, right? My visual stamp. Um, but it didn't work. First of all, it was for free, too. It was like, yeah. oh, they're not paying me for layouts. Right. So I'm not going to do this extra work, this extra thinking, when it's going to be sort of ignored anyway. It's not going to look the way I laid it out. So it's like, you know what? Let's just, you do your, your the art, I'll do the writing. That's that, it. That was going to be a question. Did it Did it look the way you no. planned at the end? No, 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 no. I feel like you got to divorce yourself completely. You just can't, as a writer, you can't even look at that stuff. It's never going to be, especially if you draw, you can't, yeah. you can't yeah, yeah, even, yeah. don't even no, work that way. I'm glad I went through that experience, but it was weird. It took a lot. It took a lot. And I got to say, there was at one point in the process when pages started coming in where it was kind of cool. I know what you mean. Yeah. It was like, oh shit, this guy's drawing, you know, these, you know, and when the pages would be colored, these pages are coming back and it's like, oh shit, yeah, that's what I wrote. That's kind of neat. That's neat. I could see how that's like thrilling to people and you just do that forever, right? But I wanted to get away from that. It was like, oh, I'm being 
cast as like a writer. I'm like, I got to be a cartoonist. So then I, I stopped, you know, um, I stopped doing writing work for all these companies. I'm like, okay, the next thing, not to say rebrand, you know, but it was like that. In the eyes of the editors, I had to project something else. It's like, you got to take the whole package or nothing, right? And there was a break in Copra coming up one of those years. I think it was 2017 or 2018, uh, you know, because at that point I did Copra and six issue arcs. There was a, a break coming up. I was like, well, who's going to pay me to do that? Who's going to pay me to write and draw and color and letter, you know, which a lot of companies don't like hand lettering, right? For whatever reason. And um, IDW was the company. They wanted to do something with uh, a property, right? There was an editor I was talking to. And I was like, I asked about Ninja Turtles first. I'm like, who, what is the property that I could work on that I love, that I know I'm familiar with? And they're like, oh, th that's unavailable. How about G.I. Joe or Transformers? I'm like, we'll take G.I. Joe. I know G.I. Joe some, you know. But then the, the negotiations took so fucking long. that I'm like, I need work. I need work for, I need a page rate soon. Hasbro sleeping on it. So I just text Rob Liefeld with like, hey, I would love to do Bloodstrike. And I pitched it and he grinned it. And it's like, oh yeah, so that's awesome that, you know, it took Rob Liefeld to like make that happen. Like gave me the keys to his kingdom, so to speak, where I could do whatever I wanted in whatever manner I wanted. And he dug it, you know, he made it happen. So it was a positive experience, like 100%. After that though, um, Hasbro came around and they're like, okay, uh, you can do G.I. Joe now. But I was already like spent. <laughs> I was spent on Bloodstrike because I, I gave it, I gave Bloodstrike my all. So I approached G.I. Joe differently. It wasn't the same thing. It was a different project, different tone, uh, different dynamics. Still a group team because that, you know, I kind of typecast myself in that. It's like doing team books. Uh, but one of them was an extreme 90s property. The other was like kind of an 80s cartoon property. So I had to approach those differently. But they're both good. They're both good. I couldn't wait to get back to Cobra. And I wouldn't be able to do that all the time, like jumping from one thing to the next and developing pitches and like playing the waiting game, hoping that someone likes what I did. Um, and that's kind of how Cobra cre was created to begin with. Just like, I could you imagine DC giving me Suicide Squad? Like, that's just never going to happen. But I needed that to happen. Like, I needed to be that guy that I took that property and do my own thing with it. But that, that wasn't ever gonna work within corporate parameters, especially in that year, especially, you know, post uh, New 52. That was a different company from the one I grew up with, you know? I, the company had changed, uh, the industry had changed since, since when I expected to break in, you know? So that's how Copra was born. Since you're the self-publisher of Copra, uh, you must, you know, have eyeballs on new readership peaks and valleys things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. did you notice uh a change in readership uh did it move the needle when you were working on these work for hire gigs you, uh did you create no. new copa readers not for marvel well how about not for marvel but for bloodstrike, bloodstrike and, and for, for bloodstrike for sure like bloodstrike fans uh rob liefeld fans they were super supportive and they've become copa readers since and subscribers and they buy the books and they buy the merch and they're super cool they're super nice i like engaging with them the gi joe audience a little bit maybe a fraction of the of the blood strike audience yeah and they're they're fine too you know that audience is like its own world you know is, yeah. all these properties have their own little 
uh, worlds and gangs, you know, that they don't really uh, interact, you know. So you got the X-Men audience, right? Like I got the Bloodstrike audience. Sometimes they cross over, sometimes it doesn't. One of the real interesting pieces when Tom was doing the Transformers G.I. Joe, like he identified like two separate, like from a distance it shows he could tell if a guy was coming up, if it was a Transformer dude or if it was a G.I. Joe cat. Like, they're, they're two tribes unto themselves. Was Savage Dragon the first print stuff? The the, the issue, that 160 or whatever? Yeah. Oh, that was... That was that was pretty early. That was... That wasn't pre-Zagus. I was in the middle of Zagus, actually. But I, I, I hadn't self-published yet. Yeah. And uh, you're talking about the tw Twisted Savage Dragon Funnies yeah. thing. That actually started with Spawn. Spawn. Todd wanted to do a Bizarro Stories, Strange Tales type of thing with Spawn. And I pitched it and then heard nothing like, nothing like he abandoned the idea. And the guy who brought it to me, I was like, that's a great idea. Why don't you uh, do something with it? You know? And he's like, nah, Todd doesn't want to do it, whatever. I mentioned it to Eric Larson, whose contact I had. Um, I'm like, why don't you do this with the Savage Dragon? That'd be cool. Hoping that he would be like, yeah, maybe you could do one. Cool. Maybe I could get like a cool like eight pager in the back of Savage Dragon. You know, that would be a dream. I love Savage Dragon. And he's got a good rich history of having cool backups and cool features in every issue. Eric Larson was like, go for it. I'm like, what do you mean go for it? He's like, run the thing. If you make it happen. So I did, <laughs> you know, he was just like, yeah, produce this stuff for a whole year. We'll give you backups for a whole year. You could do one, have your friends do one, whatever. And that's what I did. I, I contacted all my comic book buddies pretty much to work for free, just to work for, again, exposure. exposure. Right. And, uh, and they came through, man, they came through and that's how it started. Uh, my, my print Savage Dragon. Right, but I was still doing web comics, but that was like a major print milestone for me. Yeah. So eventually that was collected. I remember driving to Baltimore that year, like after the, the series had begun, and in hopes of getting a collection of like kind of pitch it to Larson. As soon as I walk up to his table, he's like, hey, the, the backups are great. Maybe we could do a collection. And I'm like, awesome. You just saved me that conversation. Great idea, Eric. That's awesome. <laughs> So he, he greenlit that, and that's when I was like, well, I got to get other people on it, like people that, you know, would work, would do me a solid and make a cool comic. There's no money, but whatever. And, uh, you know, Tom did a story. You and Jason Lex did a story. You know, it was great. It was cool. It was a cool book. But, you know, that, that's an under-the-radar title to begin with, Savage Dragon. You know, so it was almost like a blip. Like we we're trying hard, we promoted it, we did signings, we did the best we could with what we got, you know. But that was a good learning curve. That was me like wrangling a bunch of people, sort of like a low-key editing, you know. I mean, I would edit some of those stories if something came back and it just didn't make too much sense. I would try to shape it a little bit. I would suggest things. Other people just just do your own thing, whatever, you know. So it was sort of an interesting uh, step for me. And I kind of did that at Bloodstrike too, you know. I did that with like uh, with Bloodstrike in that the way Image works, it's that you get twenty pages, you get paid for the twenty pages of story, right? And then there's back matter, and I just didn't want there to be ads, so I asked a bunch of people like, "Do you want to do a pinup, a fake pinup, or a story or whatever?" And just filled it, you know, just filled it to the brim with just cool shit that I just wanted to see. 
You made good on not inviting me to do Savage Dragon by letting me do that Dutch piece. <laughs> I was on that Harvey Picard tip at that time, too. I was so jealous of Tom and uh, Jimmy. Like, man, I want to do a Savage Dragon. <laughs> I, I had those. I, I had your minis from back then. I was the a, super stippled I was, fucking crazy. I was the run of the litter, man. Like, super, super. Also, I didn't awful. know you. I knew you. Yeah. I think I met you at a mocha once. I don't remember how how we met, man. I, I was I was trying to think about. Must have been that. at a show. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea about like the first time. It's definitely online stuff before meeting in person. Yeah, but I had that mini where you were in a straight jacket. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like Drew Friedman level, like fucking like insane shit. And then the Harvey stuff, of course. But yeah, that Savage Dragon stuff. I hold that stuff fondly. You know, um, I like that period of comics, but it's so different now. Like I, I would never ask anyone to work for free like you know i'll pay a l it's not much but i'll pay something worth your time but back then i don't know i'm glad i went through it you know what year was that because that I, I feel like that's right before comics kind of start to really kind of come out of that late 90s early 2000s it's 2009 2009 2010 because i started zegas around 2000 late 2010 yeah, I feel like there's the, a real image renaissance in like, I don't know, 2012, 2013, where I remember looking around at what am I going to do? And it's like, man, they're publishing single issue comics, good single issue comics again. Like there was a real energy around it, but it felt like that had not been there for a while. And I think Savage Dragon Twisted Funnies comes out sort of at the end of that dark period of like, I don't know, not not a big readership or not a lot of interest, not a lot of media coverage, right. that kind of stuff. Right. And then it starts to, it had started turning around and at that point it feels like the industry starts this upward trajectory. Hey man, I was working on Zegas and I pitched it to Image and it didn't work. I pitched Zegas everywhere, everywhere. Was that Larson publisher at that time? No, Stevenson. that was like, it was Stevenson. Okay. But Larson still, you know, he has, I don't know if he has say, I, don't, I wouldn't frame it as such, but I had done the Savage Dragon funnies, so I was familiar with everyone somewhat. So I'm like, oh yeah, this is an in, a sort of in, you know. Uh, it's not locked in, it's not like in the bag or anything, but they passed on it and that's fine, but that's why I had to self-publish because I'm like, I have all this material and I want to continue doing it. And it's just not fair to, my, to the readers or myself to have this stuff only online. I really want to... I wanted to have the print edition, you know, I really, before I, I quit comics or, or before I, whatever I did, I was just, I, I needed to do something my way. Right. Um, and that's why I started self-publishing. Let's, let's talk about that for the, the back half of our, our conversation. The, the Zegas stuff that you published mm -hmm. off the bat, it has, it was sort of the same, uh, technical setup as, uh, as as Copra was like really handsome paper, oversized, mm -hmm. chunky paper, like a, a extremely good quality product. I can't think of anything else that had that sort of tactility to it. And you're such a comic head. I'm, uh, you know what I mean. Like the stuff we're going to be talking about today, <laughs> it's very mainstream, floppy. You know, it mm -hmm. fits in a bag and board. Mm -hmm. So my question is about the impetus of all of that stuff, like uh, the format. The paper, it's so different than standard comics. Well, the format I, that I loved also, other than the standard traditional comic book size, was the magazine size, the mm -hmm. Love and Rockets Fantagraphics format, the very first 50 issues. I, I just love that format. I love it. And uh, so that's what I decided to do Zegas on, because pr the Panorama thing on LiveJournal, that was just standard comic size. So I wanted to try something different. 
And that's when I started incorporating color into my work, right? So little by little, just a, a few colors here and there, nothing too crazy. Which, by the way, even at that time, color book, like, I feel like color was still expensive then. Yeah. And especially yeah. on a self-publishing level. Right. Because that was my coming out of that background of like, if you're going to do indie comics, they're black and white. It's got to be black and white. Maybe gray tones, right? Uh, forget wash. Like, wash will look weird. You run the risk of it looking really That's muddy. straight up air cell comics kind of <laughs> gimmicks. And those are markers and, I mean, whatever. You just run a risk, right? So because of technology being what it was at that point, I was able to produce something pretty cheap, affordable for me, full color at magazine size with that spe specific paper, which I worked with a printer who was pretty patient with me. Was it in New York? No, they're in Canada. Okay. What's it called? Uh, Avenue 4. I don't know if they're still around. I think they're still around. I don't work with them anymore. I jump from printer to printer uh, just to test out different things. It's always different. But back then, I remember they sent me a copy and it was super glossy, like a proof sort of, of what they wanted, of they were gonna do, what they were going to do. And I was so terrified. I'm like, no, 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 no. Is there anything we could not do this? <laughs> so I would send them, I don't know, samples. I would try to talk to them. They would send me little samples and strips and stuff. And we landed on what I used in Segas. And it looked great. Uh, you know, I thought the colors really popped. It was sturdy. It would survive the mailing system. Um, I just wanted a cool artifact, just a cool item for someone to hold. As much as I love those old comics, I wanted something that would stand out a little bit, you know? But but then when it came to Copra, I combined it. I combined that sensibility with a standard format, size, page count, stuff like that. So I don't know. I just always liked that high-end stuff, that almost like quasi-prestige format, raw magazine, sort of like. I just like that attention to, attention to quality. Did you have any reservations going to superheroes with Copra? I would no, I wouldn't say reservations, but at that point, because I wasn't gaining any traction, breaking into the big two or even just side little gigs through IDW or whatever, I would send samples to everybody. And uh, I was just doing indie stuff, for lack of a better term. You know, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm an indie guy. I don't see my style as an indie guy. It's just the way I draw. But if I'm indie, whatever, right? So I thought doing Copra was. Um, it would. I didn't know if anyone would like it because I was so conditioned to think, oh yeah, those two things belong in separate places. Superhero, adventure, genre stuff, and whatever it is you do, right? The way you draw, the way you ink, the way you present shit, like it's just very different. They're not compatible. And like I said earlier, I think that's just the main thrust of my entire, not only this project, but my, my entire career is just me trying to combine those things. Me trying to be like, me trying to resist and fight the fact that Superheroes don't have to be limited. They don't have to look a certain way. It's actually the opposite. They could look like anything, but it's, and I get it, it's led by commercial uh, considerations. Things sell, things don't. Editors think this sells, this doesn't, you know. I think it's led by um, nostalgia of two giant corporate companies in this country. You know, the superheroes in a, in a big way, sure. Yeah. And that may have changed in the last decade or two, but I mean that's that's what we we grew up reading the same comics because they dominated distribution and publishing and everything and it was like the one genre. The reason that I asked you about the superhero stuff is because you're a similar age of us. Mm -hmm. We grew up when there was a divide of alternative comics and superheroes that's and right. it was like almost at 
at odds with one another. You that's know, right. You yeah. were one or the other. You couldn't like both. And that's really changed. Uh, and really in our careers, that has really changed where it's like, yeah, you can bring it all in. Like there's yeah. no divide anymore. There's mm -hmm. not like two groups. Although like you say, there might be a hundred groups now. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, it, I knew people that struggled with that. You know, I, I knew people like us who had grown up as superhero fans, but it was almost like a dirty secret if you still enjoyed those or if you read any superhero comics. Right. If, if you were an indie guy, remember, it was cool if you liked Kirby. Mm -hmm. You got that much leeway. Like, all right, we'll allow Kirby to be celebrated. Not Frank Miller. Definitely not the Image guys. Definitely not. That is, that, that is that's garbage. Us. That's us. I think it was like... Started with the Kirby stuff, then you had like the comics, comics where they would talk about the color techniques of you no know, <laughs> Adams and Kevin Nolan. Mm -hmm. Talk a little Howard Chaykin. It started to bleed a little bit more. Yeah. But it, it would almost be like what the the old timers that that we would interview they would talk about ground level comics yeah. or like you know like American Flag. It's not. It's like superhero adjacent books or mm. whatever. Uh, and at this point now, I feel like our crew, like, it's not like you get to decide what area you're in or who, who you're identified with, but I would say that the three of us and maybe seven, eight other dudes really represent an, an era or something. Uh, I, I don't want to say the word movement because it's not like we're trying to do anything. Mm -hmm. Well, we My just have those influences. We fucked with yeah. before. We were in the child, children of the speculator market. Yeah. We were there at the start of Image. And we were there for Eight Ball and mm -hmm. and Acme Novelty Library. Like we are the kids who grew up with both, and and see sort of no difference. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you know, recently I've been thinking about my trajectory and trying to break in. You know, not to look back too much, but I'm like, okay, what what did I do wrong? What happened, right? And I think I know. It's not that I had thin or thick skin. I think it's just when I would show my stuff to like an editor and they'd be like, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. I wouldn't go back and try to fix those things. I would be like, well, he just doesn't understand. I'm just gonna do my own indie, crazy, artsy shit. Fuck superheroes, right? So then I would go and start drawing my own weird, you know, esoteric type of just kind of nonsense, thinking that was art, thinking, oh, this is my indie shit, right? And I would submit it to the companies and when they would turn it, they'd be like, what is this, you know? once that didn't hit I'm like fuck well fuck art and fuck the indies I'm gonna do superhero because that's a job and that's you know I could make sense of that that's a career I could take steps and I would do more superhero samples and I would get those criticisms but I didn't fix those criticisms I would just go back to indies so it was like this ping-pong match of like I'm not learning anything I'm just I'm just I'm in this weird loop where I'm too thick-headed and proud to improve so I think I just improved just by fact that I just kept doing it, but I didn't really take any advice from either side. I think to my detriment, you know, I think I could have gotten to where I'm at quicker had I listened, had I had either a mentor or school. You know, I never went to school. You know, we were talking about school earlier and it's like, I, I never had someone to be like, all right, cut this shit. You really want to do this? You got to sit down and fix the things that you're getting wrong, you know? Uh, or to do art in a certain way. If you're going to do indie, just really shape your vision. Don't just put shit out there. Just really, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? And I think, cut to Copra, that's me reconciling both. Hopefully in a way that's entertaining to people. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to imagine you getting there sooner by following somebody's feedback because stylistically your, your stuff is so unique. 
you know, if you were going to move more towards getting work at Marvel, DC, IDW, it would have meant shaving certain stylistic ticks off, sure. probably. Uh, and same with going through like a school program or working underneath someone, you know, like all of those things would in a way, I think, rob what Cobra is. It would have been different, certainly. But then I, I just think the proof is in guys like Walt Simonson or Sam Keith. Those, And maybe Walt is weird because Walt, like I fucking know him, <laughs> Mr. Simonson. Um, he's an anomaly because he's a fan favorite, but he's so weird, right? Really, he's just, if you compare it to like what was... in. in, in in context, it's so fucking weird. Sam Keith, again, like, how how did that guy get a job, right? Compare, you know, when you think about, like, editorial being so conservative, how did that guy get through? I know 100% what you're saying, because I it remember it, buying Sam Keith's Hulk fill-in and just being like, well, how did this get, what is this? What happened? Well, I never saw and it just got like more that, intense yeah. and weirder and weirder, and I'm like, yeah, so you can make a career out of this. It is possible, and I, I just kept that. Even McFarlane, as popular as he was, that stuff is weird. Yep. That stuff is unorthodox for sure. And it just got popular. So it's almost like, oh yeah, I don't have to draw like a specific house style. I could just do my own thing. Just let me get in there. Let me break in. But I wasn't savvy enough to do that and I didn't have a mentor or someone to really guide me. Maybe for the best. It it worked out the way it was supposed to, right? It's just me thinking about that. Just me thinking about like, damn, I have all these sample, all those years of like, trying to make inroads and it just didn't work. So it's just interesting to me. It's, you know, I don't regret anything, but it was just kind of funny. Explain uh, this sort of, because you're doing everything down to the distribution of, of Copra. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and by and large? Uh-huh, at least the issues. The issues, yeah, right. I've never distributed the collections yeah. ever. So explain that period of time, and uh, specifically that first run of Copra where you were trying to do that shit monthly uh, yeah. and, and certainly at a greater frequency. What was that process like per issue? How many weeks or so were spent uh, in production, putting the pages together, working with printers and having boxes shipped to your apartment and sending that stuff out? Because I know that that's couple of days at least yeah it was intense but I, I just I just broke it all down to days you know I had I had X amount of days to do every job to write I better get that script done in two days I better do layouts in a day or two maybe pencil you know it was all broken down very specifically and I had to get it done because every issue to me meant rent mm. it wasn't like a, a vanity project that yeah. oh, just come out whenever you know I was paying rent. I made enough money from one issue to pay for the print run for the next issue and to pay my rent, you know, to pay utilities and stuff and other bills. I'll, I'll, you know, you do an illustration here. You try, you're just something. Yeah, you sell some art. Yeah. But the issues were rent money to me for that first year, for sure. And then after I did the one solid year of just monthly comics, that's when it was like the Marvel writing gig. And it's like, it all kind of like cooled off. I could do that. I could work with... You know, Joe Casey on a couple Captain Victory pages. I could do a Daredevil short story. I could do a little bit. So I was in. I was, okay, this is, I'm paying my bills making comics. This wasn't just a fluke, right? Like, it worked. Like, I, I, I ran the risk of that one year. I'm like, okay, I'm going to dedicate a year to do this one thing, see if it works. And to be honest, I didn't know if it would go past the third issue because I had no idea what it was going to turn into. You know, I, I thought... I could have burnt out. I could have just not had stories to tell. I could have just, 
devolved into something. But to me, it was like, oh yeah, this is what I've always wanted to do. So it was just a natural sort of thing. The schedule just kind of like locked me into it. I had to do it. And I had a subscription and it was only a, a, a few people, but people that paid money for the subscription for 12 issues. It was a whole, I'm like, or t 11, because it started on issue two. But I'm like, oh man, I, I can't give that money back. You know, like I gotta produce the the work. I, I gotta produce secret. these books. I don't think they give the money back. We talk all the time <laughs> about these indies that are like, here, buy the subscription, and it's like one issue was published ever. It's it's so it's so cool that that you made good on your commitments with yes. that stuff. And uh, in those earlier days when when you were doing that first round, I, I I seem to remember stories not from you but from roommates, housemates, who would say that like when that print when that box of books is supposed to show up. Like you are at the window, like a puppy dog, like wait, like waiting for the oh, shit yeah. to show up. Oh yeah. Because then it's time to put on distributor cap. Yeah. And start filling envelopes. I mean, I was on on pins and needles waiting for that truck from Canada to ship um, whatever copies. I you know I started with three hundred, four hundred copies. You know, which ain't shit, but it's a lot for me. It's all I could actually physically accommodate in my studio. Yeah and sell to stores and, tell, and sell to subscribers and maybe post a couple extra copies on Etsy and sell them individually. But that's how it started, you know, working with uh, the printer, but also, and they were easy to work with, but also just having the room and the space to just go, just create the pages. You know, I didn't have a, a job at the time. That was my job. You know, that was the risk involved, you know. I hadn't been. I was working before at a at a like a costume design puppet shop in the city, and I had been there for seven years. I'm like, yeah, it's time to go. I, so I had to really focus on comics and see if that worked or not, you know. Because before I was trying to do it the same way we all do, just have that side gig, but really it's comics what we want to do in hopes of breaking in. That's my version of breaking in. Because before it was only like little jobs here and there, and that wasn't enough. Self publishing Copra, putting it out, making good on those subscriptions having the goodwill of the stores and the readers and just building and building and building, I think that helped. I tell you at the time, I think we had done a show in Philly and yeah. ran into you right about the time that you were launching I remember that. maybe issue yeah. one. The Locust Moon. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, like I was following your work, I hadn't known you for years at that point, and it seemed like a really radical concept. You know, I'm gonna self publish, I'm gonna distribute, I'm gonna do all this stuff myself, a color book. Were you looking at like, I don't know, were you talking to other self-publishers like like a Jeff Smith or Dave Lapham, Dave Sim, any of these people that had self-published? Because it's pretty rare what you're doing. I didn't, no, I didn't talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like I could manage it. It was only a couple hundred copies of this thing. I could manage that, you know? And it slowly grew and grew. And by that time, I just had been accustomed to the rhythm of handling the boring aspect you know, the grind of the managerial aspect of self-publishing, you know, following invoices and supplies and scheduling, you know, whereas I just really wanted to draw. And that's why I resisted self-publishing for years, you know, even though the guys like Dave Sim and all those guys, they, they made it work, but I just didn't want to do that. I wanted someone to do it for me. I wanted uh, a Gary Groth to just let me go wild, right? Someone to take care of the business. I didn't talk to anybody. No, I remember talking to you at that show and it was like the second issue I had just gotten the second issue delivered and it was it's it was still so fresh and new. It was so weird. 
I think I just went by the by the um, the adrenaline rush of just having stuff produced. I know nothing beats that. Like to this day, even just having the book show up and having right. it in print—that's like it for me. So it's how, so good. So you know, you mentioned a couple hundred copies of those. Uh, it's enough to pay rent. You can't even pay utilities with it, uh, and there's enough to to seed the next issue. Kind of head, kind of a head trip, is it, man? Well, you see that like those first issues go for like five, six hundred dollars on uh, on eBay. Yeah, I, I wish I would have kept some copies, you know, <laughs> right? You can maybe do a bootleg set. Oh, yeah, I could do something like that. That's that's that is a weird aspect of it that you know, of course, it's flattering, but it's also just that collector aspect of the industry. And I'm like, oh, I had no idea that would even make a mark because if people don't give a shit, those would be worthless. Right. You know, like you could have a hundred copies or 50 copies of something, but if no one's looking for it, then who cares? And that's what my comics were before. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I was pretty lucky in that regard. You know, I don't really see a dime off of that. It's just all, sure. it's just like bragging points, I guess, or bragging rights, but whatever, you know, if people collect the way they collect, right? Like I can't control that. I used to try to do that, right? Because people would try to buy like five or 10 copies and I had to limit it, one per customer. Because so I'm like, I just want people to read it. If you're a dude buying five or 10 copies to then flip it on eBay, fuck off, right? But I had to get my head up out my own ass because I'm like, you know what, let them buy. I'll just print more, whatever. Let them do what they do, I guess, whatever, you and know? Did you have a moment where you're like, this is working? Was, was there, I don't know, selling out issue three or selling subscriptions or having to put a compendium together? Like, was there a moment where you're like, okay, this is, we've, the, the system's in place, the response is as good or better than hoped? You know, maybe when the, maybe when the compendium happened, I think I did get my Gary Groth in, by way of uh, Tucker Stone and Tom Adams, co-owners of uh, Bergen Street Comics. They're my local shop and they were good friends. And they kind of experimented with uh, putting out a compendium of the first three issues that sold out quickly, right? And I was out and I just, I couldn't print more. And they're like, well, what if we just collect it and it'll just be a cool item? You know, there's been a history of stores getting into print, you know. Uh, at that point, you know, um, Desert Island and Floating World had done stuff. So it was just natural that Bergen Street would kind of like do something cool, right? And I was honored to be uh, subject to that, right? To be the, the the person that they chose, right? And it worked and those things flew off the shelf. Like those are great. And so I think a big part of of uh, the success of corporate was that the word of mouth and because of Bergen Street Comics, like really pushing it, you know, because that gave it that like, kind of like um, that cool novelty, you know, thing where it's like, ooh, this store's doing what now? Like, what are they putting out? So it's like a bunch of different set of eyes on Copra. And I, I got a readership out of that, you know? So I got my my old readership, some new people, the Bergen Street people. It all kind of like came together to create like this sort of momentum that has served me since, you know? So they were super valuable in, in the success of, uh, of Copra for sure. They eventually went from a few compendiums to actually releasing the books. Bergen Street Comics became an actual publisher and they started producing the six issue collections. Uh, then they went on to produce, you know, Chuck Forsman's comics. Uh, 
Um, Those collections were really nice. I remember yeah. picking up the collection, and I had the, the, the original comics, picking up the collection and being like, oh, I have the comics. I don't need this. Until I picked one up and was like, oh, this is really nice. <laughs> Beautiful paper and everything. Yeah. They, they, they did a really great job with it, too. And I think that helps. You know, yeah. because especially when it comes to books, like that's a real thing, picking it up and seeing how it feels, you know, yeah, and seeing yeah. what it looks like on, on the actual paper that was chosen and stuff. Yeah. And that's about as good production wise as any book I can think of. For sure. And Tom and Tucker, they had their own sensibilities. They had an editorial point of view, whether they admit that or not. They just had taste. They had their own taste is what I'm saying. Yeah. They knew what they liked. They knew what they didn't. And they, they walked it, you know. Right, and they, and I think the store is um, a version of that. The way they curated the books that they sold, and the way they presented themselves, the way they—that's what set them apart. And they just applied that to my book, so I just benefited from that, you know, because I had my own sensibilities for the issues, very specific um, details that I wanted, different specific paper stock. The collections are different, and I'm all for that. I want every edition to kind of be different, have its own identity, so. Yeah, I miss them. <laughs> I miss Bergen. Because now Image does the uh, handles the collections. Yeah, well, Bergen shut its doors, um, and so I needed a home, and Image was the natural fit. Because Image was actually, they they were going to be the original publisher of Cobra, but I, w I had to make a decision. I'm like, well, are you guys going to become a publisher, or do I go to Image? And that's when they decided, okay, we're gonna release the books. And so I just, out of loyalty, and because I just dug what they did, I'm like, okay, Bergen Street all the way, until they weren't a concern anymore. And so I'm like, okay, well maybe Image will take it now, you know, but I still gotta do the single issues somewhat. But then at that point, I'm trying to remember, that's when I wanted to stop self-publishing because mm -hmm. I was just burnt out, yeah. you know, after like 20, 30, 31 issues. I was just like, I need a break. If Image collects the books, maybe they could start doing the issues as well. And so that lasted for about six issues until I just got back to self-publishing essentially. So it was an experiment, sure. you know. Dude, you did the Jeff Smith gimmick. You, you got you got to give it a shot and see see what happens. I, I think I think it's important for longevity to check other avenues. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. In the spirit of sort of trying new things, I'm like, why not? And it worked. I got some new readers out of it. The, the books do well, continue to do well. So. I always think like one of the great things of owning your own comics is that you get to do, you can have it online, you can do the comic book version, mm -hmm. you can do the deluxe edition, the collections, all these things. And the way you've set up Copra, it's like those things are really unique entities. You know, like like what Image is doing is very different than if somebody is buying issues from you. Yes. And that's kind of cool. It's almost the maximum version of that. Like how how unique can you make each one of these formats that you're choosing to put your material into? Yeah, yeah. And when well, now that they're doing the the first twelve issues, you know, the the huge, my first hardcover in the states, I wanted that to look different too. You know, it's going to be oversized. It's going to be on a different kind of paper, like a little grittier. Um, it's just gonna be a cool thing. I'm super excited to see it. We should we should end on that note, man. When is that book hitting the show? It's coming out November 16th, right before the holidays really hit. So that was weird, that was cool because it was weird in that I had to look at old issues, you know, the first 12 issues. I try to never read my stuff unless I'm referencing like a, a plot detail or a costume detail. And reading that stuff is just, it's just, I don't know. It was fun, it was fun. You know, it's so far removed from what I do now, I, th I feel like, uh, aesthetically, or just the way I think about comics. Not too removed, but it's 
it's different enough where it's like I could uh, appreciate it and not harsh, not not like judge it too harshly, right? It's like ten years, man. That's a different person, especially I know your productivity. I know. I, I had one more thing I wanted to ask you about, like prepping for this interview. One thing that came up in my mind: the idea of fan fiction and nostalgia. And I don't know how much you think about those two things, if you think they, you know, are a major part of your work or not. If you have positive or negative thoughts on them, but did you have any thoughts on on that? subject and how it relates to the work you make well first of all that's about fan fiction that was sort of like the taboo aspect of copra right where it's like oh it, it's just fan fiction right it's just that's what it is sort of you could make a case for that you know whether it be pro or con it was sort of like oh this indie guy's making like superhero fan fiction you know if you want to frame it like that you can and it you, i guess technically it could be but i didn't really think about it you know, I like I had no idea Fifty Shades of Grey was fan fiction. You now, know, that kind of talk, it, uh, that's fan talk. It just doesn't matter like, to me. Yeah. Like you're a maker of things. Right. And, I, and if you're a fan of comics. If and you just follow. Fiction, yeah. If you follow that that logic, it's like, well, Marvel Comics has been fan fiction since the day Kirby left. Yeah, exactly. Like that doesn't matter. It's almost like the term. Like it's like like selling out isn't a term that really means much these days. It's it's such a different world. You know, the conditions are so different that that's just a dated concept almost or it just means something different and in terms of i don't know there in terms of nostalgia it's different because people really get like an 80s vibe or 90s vibe from some of my stuff but i don't really replicate anything from the 80s like the paper stock the way i ink the way i write the just my whole the whole copra thing is not really 80 centric i'm not really out to like replicate a thing right so it's just a feeling that people have maybe it's a subscription one could argue, and, it, and it's maybe because i've been reading comics journal interviews but one could argue that the entire format of the comic book is a nostalgic format maybe maybe i mean the 20 okay so the reason i chose copra to be a specific format it was because the industry standard yeah it was that format i was like okay so comics are 20 pages at that point i'll make it 24. they have tons of ads i'll put no ads in there but i wanted it to be in that format so you could bag and board it no retailers could complain about the size because you know some retailers could you know complain about like it's too big it doesn't fit the shelves it doesn't fit the boxes all right i'll make it easy on you i'll make it standard size that's why it's serialized that's why it uses you know it's a superhero story so all those conventions i used to my advantage but th that's part of the makeup of it you know so i don't think it's because it's nostalgic because the size is still the same the product you know the production might be a little higher but i don't i just don't think nostalgia plays too much into it maybe it does maybe it's too baked into what i like and it comes out in the work and maybe people read into it but i just never consciously do it you know it's not a thing it's not a bad or good thing it just the only time i tried to actually actively replicate something is for Bloodstrike. I wanted something shinier. I wanted to mimic the letters pages. That's why the pinups were kind of like faux ads. I'm like, I wanted to, that is me trying to replicate something very specific. And just for that, just for that, for Copra, it was like, I'm just using the industry standards, the status quo uh, details to create this thing my way. But I don't know, yeah, maybe nostalgia is a part of it. I just, it's not an active ingredient, as far as I know, I don't know. Also, the fact that I'm working on characters that are tied to a different era, though, might be it, you know. And I didn't, uh, 
just for the record, like fan fiction, something I'm, I think of some of my work as fan fiction. Certainly the Hulk was all fan fiction in my mind. I have no negative connotation about that. I just think as we move into this world where we're basically on our own, I think in the American comics industry, for the most part, you know, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of editorial input, especially in self-publishing. It is different than going through, say, a Marvel or a DC editorial system. Yeah, and it and it is really uh, in the way Fifty Shades of Grey might be fan fiction. It kind of is fan fiction in that one person can do it, and then it's direct to the consumer and let the chips fall where they may. You know, based on your own in intuitive quality of what you're making, maybe. But it still is this thing that exists almost as like you love comics, you grew up wanting to make comics, and now you're able to make whatever comics you want. It's amazing, it's empowering, but I don't, you know, like in my mind, I think of the Japanese fan fiction as well as being a huge inspiration of that, where it's like, you can just make whatever you want now, and you're an example of proof that you can do that. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing, like, like kind of what we started talking about was like, I was trying to play the game. I was trying to do all the right things, and it just wasn't working for me. So I just did this instead, and that, that served me really well. So I don't know, man, whatever works, people can't get mad at that, you know, fuck them. Yeah, straight, straight up, man. I think that's a good place to leave it. But before we do that, let the people know once again when this uh, Copra collection is coming out. The Copra Master Collection is coming out November 16th from Image Comics. Uh, every store should be able to get it. It's in the catalog. It's easy, easily orderable. We must be getting close to a final cutoff because those books take some time uh, to... Uh, construct man so yeah. I encourage everybody to uh, go to your local comic shop put in your orders and pre-orders sure. uh, right right this moment so that Image and Michelle know how many of these fuckers to uh, print up off the bat <laughs> that's right <laughs> anything else you want to let people know about man any show appearances signings uh, how, how do how do they get the how do they sign up for the Cobra latest issues? issue of Cobra well you could just go to my website, michellefife.com, and all the information's there. You could go to the, you know, it has links to the Etsy store where I sell issues and I sell merch, t-shirts and stuff. Uh, and I update news too for any store signings that nothing's been confirmed yet, but I do have some store signings coming up. And just on socials, you know, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all over the place. Really just go to michellefife.com. It's all there. It's all there. Super good. Anything you want to close on on? All right, man, let's get the hell out of here and uh, go read some comics. Let's go, man.